Hello and welcome to the Philanthropy Australia podcast. This is a story happening across Australia every week. It may sound familiar, but it's challenging in its complexity and the choices that have to be made. It starts with Neha, who is 73. She moved to Brisbane from India with her de facto husband a few years ago on a partner visa. Neha's husband became seriously ill and was put in palliative care in Brisbane. Nia was a constant in her care for him, visiting and supporting him as his condition deteriorated. During one of her hospital visits, Nia disclosed to a hospital social worker that she was experiencing psychological abuse from her stepchildren. Nia also revealed that her stepchildren stole personal items, including her visa documents, jewellery and money from their father's bank account. They had entered Nia and her partner's home on many occasions without consent. Nia felt unsafe. As a result of talking to the social worker, the Older Persons Advocacy and Legal Service, or OPALS, was engaged to support Nia. They not only provided her with legal advice regarding DVOs, her obligations as her partner's statutory health attorney, but also general succession law regarding her partner's assets and their joint assets, and precautionary advice regarding probate and letters of administration in the event of her partner passing away. Opals also provided social work support to ensure Neha's safety, and that included a change of locks at Neha's home, a safety plan, and referral to additional services, including, for example, the Financial Protection Service. The Opal social worker continued to provide emotional support for Neha for months, even later after Neha's partner passed away. Opals will also direct her where to seek further advice from a private wills and estate lawyer. Opals is one of more than 100 health justice partnerships in Australia. It brings together Caxton Legal Centre in Brisbane and Metro South Health Hospitals. And the key to understanding what this actually is and how it works is in the name. Health, Justice, Partnership. At its most basic, the partnership brings health workers and lawyers together to help support a client whose issues may present as health-related but are often intrinsically linked to unresolved legal issues. Poor health from insecure housing, the physical consequence of family violence, the mental health impact of complex visa requirements. But just how this came about in Australia is a big story of strategic philanthropy that goes back a decade and underlines just how valuable a collaborative approach is to solving complex problems. Let's start with Peter Noble, who is now Executive Director, Regions and Service Delivery at Victorian Legal Aid. But back in the day, was head of the Loddon Compaspe Community Legal Centre, based in Bendigo. I worked at the Loddon Compaspe Community Legal Centre for about 11 years. And as anyone who works in the legal assistance sector knows, clients rarely present with just one issue or one legal issue. And so it was quite common in the course of casework to be aware of multiple impacting problems on people's lives. And that immediately begged the question, what can you do about that and how can you work better with other service providers to pursue more enduring solutions for clients or bolster supports for them to be able to resolve their legal problems? 
David Hillard, partner and national practice group leader pro bono at national law firm Clayton Utes, knew about the medical legal partnerships in the US. They'd been around since the early 2000s. David and Peter started talking about what could be done in Australia to build an understanding of the idea. In 2012, Clayton Newts funded Peter to go to the US and study just how their medical legal partnerships worked. It was a new idea, and so it needed somebody to start it, I guess, was probably the, the simplest thing. Really, my, my thinking about it came very much from a how do I, as a lawyer who wants to assist vulnerable clients who can't get access to a lawyer, find those clients. And so I was really thinking about it from, to be honest, the idea of placing um, lawyers within the health system seemed to be a logical way to, to find people who would otherwise never try and access the legal system. Somebody needed to sort of take the philanthropic decision to put put some money into getting this to start. I think there was general agreement amongst a number of us that this was this was a movement that was that's time had come. It then needed financing to get to get it kick started and that's the role we played and we've continued to provide support where we can. Peter knew there were already some organizations in Australia that adopted a collaborative approach. Inner city legal centres in Melbourne, for example, that worked with a hospital or health service to help resolve family violence issues, drug or tenancy problems. But this represented something that was potentially more evolved. Uh, the Clay Newts Foundation funded the London Capacity CLC when I was there to research mm. medical legal partnerships in 2012. That funding led to a report and uh, it articulated a need to do a number of things to get the model going in Australia. One was to fund specific initiatives in different locations with different cohorts. Another was to fund evaluation of the model. Another is to fund a a peak that could take the movement forward, uh, recognising that that would require sustained effort and wouldn't simply come from a simple example of successful application of the model in a location. There are lots of antecedents of this in Australia, lots of examples of more multidisciplined practice and where, where people observe the intersection of legal health and other social issues. I don't want to claim that this is a particularly new model, but Mm. through the investigation of medical legal partnership and its subsequent expansion in in Australia under the name of health justice partnerships, we were able to, I think, really draw attention to the coincidence of these issues and encourage policymakers to be thinking differently about how services are funded and encourage service providers to think differently about how they take up partnerships in a more regular and sustained manner. Part of turning the innovation into something sustainable was the investment in establishing a peak body, Health Justice Australia. On the Health Justice Australia website, there is a phrase used to describe what's going on, a quiet revolution. That phrase says something about the extent of the change and the lack of noise that's accompanied it. Tessa Boyd-Kane is Health Justice Australia CEO. By the time Health Justice Australia is established as a centre of excellence, we know we've got something. But as the founding CEO, that was often the conversation I was having in 2016, 2017. The conversation was, we've got something. We're not quite sure yet what it is. 
we don't yet have outcomes data. What we've got is a really clear picture in the evidence that we're responding to and a really strong sense from services that they are meeting needs that weren't previously met. And that's why we needed a centre of excellence to start building much more rigorous comparable evidence, to start working with practitioners to collect the lessons of practice and share those, and to start working with policymakers and funders to make sure that we were bringing those lessons from a very local level into programmatic and indeed system level change. And here we come to a fascinating juncture for those who are starting to see just how revolutionary this particular approach really is. Tessa talks about system level change, but there's so many other elements inherent in the health justice work that resonate with broader philanthropic themes. It's a place-based approach. Much of the work is about local support for local people. It's about paying what it takes. This is long-form work that requires a deep understanding of the complexity of the problems being dealt with and the time and resources needed to solve it. And it's strategic philanthropy, innovating and sticking with an innovation for the long haul. Yasmin Adels is a lawyer working in the OPALS program through the Caxton Legal Centre in Brisbane. She's seen just how diverse the problems are and how a collaborative approach can be a successful one to solving them. For her, it's about embedding access to justice. The partnership can also take some of the pressure off the health professionals who may find themselves confronted by a myriad of interlinked issues, many of them that require a lawyer to navigate. But the approach also puts improving the health of disadvantaged people at the centre of the conversation. In general, they have to work intersectorally, working across different agencies and government departments. I guess like particularly working with the multicultural population. I've had clients at one time who would have, you know, a visa immigration issue that's also related to a housing issue, that's also related to an employment issue. You know, they might also be experiencing domestic violence. So being able to work across different agencies and levels of government, because one might be a state issue, one might be a federal issue. I mean, that way we're able to provide, you know, case management too, looking at all the different issues as they are interrelated. And again, we're able to cover more issues in a less fragmented way. It's definitely can be confusing when there's so much going on. And we've had clients where sometimes like, oh my God, it just keeps going. You know, you close one door, you open another, but you have to be able to work across the different agencies and sectors to fully help and assist that client. And that case management side is so important too, because, you know, a lot of lawyers, you know, do stay in their area of law, which of course makes sense. But when working with vulnerable groups of people who have so many different issues going on, this is key to a health justice partnership. What Yasmin identifies in practice is in many ways how several key issues that were identified early in the process have played out. David Hillard knew there was going to be issues from the start about finding common ground between the health providers and the lawyers. It was pretty clear that the medical system and the legal system speak totally different languages and have a a, a very real level of distrust in some circumstances. So the idea of, hey, a lawyer wants to come to our hospital and hang around is probably something which is very concerning (laughs) for many people within within the health system because it speaks of sort of literally ambulance chasing and here are are lawyers trying to find people that they can charge and provide legal services to that might ultimately be about suing hospitals or, or being involved in medical negligence claims. The challenge meant that the dialogue had to change. This is, after all, a partnership that's about resolving problems. But the partnership really couldn't get started unless the health service or hospital 
could see that involving a lawyer would lead to a better outcome for the client. As lawyer Yasmin explains it, one of the critical steps was understanding where conversation started, especially with key demographics, who often turned first to health workers to help them with non-health problems. It definitely needs a separate strategy to reach older people. And healthcare settings are one of the best places to reach elderly people because you know, research shows that many people trust their healthcare professionals, you know, more so than a lawyer. Statistics show that one in three people will reach out to a healthcare professional with a legal problem. And this is even more so for elderly people who might not even know that what they are experiencing is elder abuse because it's such a hidden issue. It's one thing to identify where the conversation starts, but there's no guarantee that the professional division between health provider and legal worker can be easily crossed. David at Clayton Newts understands the dilemma. The idea of a partnership had to be realised. That, that really, I think, meant that there had to be some really significantly different ways of thinking about this. It was really clear that it couldn't be badged up as a legal process as such, that it couldn't be a sort of, you know, law firm X provides a clinic or, you know, it wasn't that type of thing. It had to be something which the hospital or the healthcare centre wanted to do and understood that it wanted to do rather than being seen as what was really my initial kind of thoughts about how do I get my lawyers into a hospital service to provide assistance to their patients. It had to be much more, this is the hospital or the health service wanting to do this and lawyers will come and help facilitate that to improve outcomes for their patients rather than me trying to look for clients. I think it's a long-term trust building process and it requires really deliberate thought and humility on the part of everybody that's involved and lawyers and humility are not necessarily words that go together. But the outcome is worth it, as lawyer Yasmin recounts. You know, working in a multidisciplinary team, so lawyers and social workers together, and then more widely with the other healthcare professionals, we're able to address legal issues more holistically because we're working as part of a wraparound model, which means better health, legal, and social support outcomes. And when working with vulnerable groups of people, this really is the only way to work. Caxton's work in the health partnership area has been supported by the Commonwealth Attorney General's Department. Yasmin says that Opal's funding has been extended by another four years and there's been a range of other government funding and philanthropic support that's helped establish local health justice partnerships across the country. For Peter Noble, the impact of these partnerships goes beyond that potential resolution of a long-standing set of problems. It offers grounds for broader thinking and therefore more lasting and penetrating social solutions. I think part of the genius of medical legal partnership or health justice partnerships is that it brings a new language to people and to policymakers when thinking about problem resolution for clients or patients. It helps to explain that the law at its best can be a means of liberating people from the darker forces that shape their lives. It can ensure that tenancy rights are respected so that housing is safe and secure. It can open the way to protection from family violence or elder abuse. It can provide an opportunity to argue for a protection visa or to entitlements to a full and free life for a person with a disability by ensuring adequate provision of health insurance in the case of the United States or social security or Centrelink benefits here in Australia or NDIS package. And so it gives a new uh, lexicon, a new way of framing the issue for people who normally put 
legal work in a different category of assistance and think purely in terms of rights protection or they think of law in a negative way rather than a means to remove barriers that impact on um, people's uh, lives or as a means to kind of liberate them in some sort of positive manner. David's delighted at the role Clayton Newts has played in all of this. I'm amazed that we are at a level now where there are more than 100 examples of this around the country. I still think despite those numbers, which are really significant, there's a long way to go. Some of that required support will come from philanthropy, but that contribution is one of a continued mix of funding sources, according to Peter. I don't think it's the job of philanthropy to fund forever and a day models such as this once they have proven their value, but they do need to hang in there long enough so that the model transitions from bright idea to a sustained service response, that it is part of the arsenal of health, legal and other social service providers to help clients and patients address their challenges. I think the history in the United States has demonstrated that you've got to work for decades to build awareness of the model, to build familiarity with the um, concepts, to make people familiar enough and uh, comfortable enough with the concepts of lawyers being in a health setting or paralegal staff being within a health setting, where sometimes that's not a comfortable place for them to be for all sorts of reasons. They might not uh, be familiar with those physical environments. They not, may not be familiar with the learning approaches of health staff. Um, health staff or their administrators might be sceptical or, or outright scared of having a lawyer in that environment if they feel that their practice might be under scrutiny or they could potentially be opening themselves up for litigation, which is, of course, completely contrary to the objective of the model. For Tessa, the main consideration for potential funders is understanding just what that partnership can deliver through developing relationships that become a platform for meaningful collaboration. We're seeing on a much broader level a growing understanding that collaboration is absolutely critical if we want to respond to complexity. What we're still not seeing is an understanding that collaboration takes capability and you need to invest in that capability. So if you are a funder funding, for instance, legal services, and the metric that you are most interested in is how many clients did a legal service see, then you are missing all of the work that goes into that legal service building relationships with healthcare partners, building the understanding of healthcare practitioners to recognise and respond to legal problems in their patients' lives, in the lives of the communities they help. All of the work that goes into building those relationships, establishing trust, that is all work that needs to be funded. But we're still, I think, a long way from funders recognising what it looks like to set the foundations for collaboration. Tessa believes philanthropy is familiar with the thinking behind health justice partnerships and can respond accordingly, helping to engage government in the next stage of the process. In some ways, I think this really connects with two conversations that are already well established in philanthropy. One is supporting organisations, not projects. So core tenet of strategic philanthropy is recognising that if you trust an organisation and believe in its purpose, then what you need to do is enable it to do its work. And so core funding is something that has rarely been made available to legal assistance services, and that would make a huge shift. Having said that, 
there is also a really strong argument that these should be core services funded by government. And so part of what philanthropy can do is demonstrate what it looks like to fund for capacity and capability differently and then be part of the conversation that really brings government to the table. And I think there's another part of the conversation here that is really about pay what it takes. The work in terms of building relationships of trust that enable collaboration, that is a prime example of the work that is rarely funded unless you've got funding for organisational capability as a whole rather than project or even programmatic funding. David maintains Clayton Utes' ground-level support more than a decade ago is a timely reminder of the role of strategic philanthropy. I think strategic philanthropy is absolutely the way to describe what's happened here. We're fortunate enough to be there at the beginning of of the germ of an idea as to how something might happen and have had a commitment to, to follow that through. And it's a decade of providing support. We're by no means the sort of the, the largest supporter of financially of health justice partnerships. Happily, we, we really provided that sort of kickstart and others have stepped in. But really being able to say, here is a here is an idea which matches sort of our strategic intentions as a firm um, and in terms of our philanthropic funding, in terms of providing access to justice and being able to follow that through. So it wasn't just a single one-off grant or it wasn't a two-year grant to get something started and then we stepped away. We we really were committed to the idea for you know, now for a decade and have continued to listen to, to those in the field who, who have further ideas about how where support can be given and where funding can be provided. From Tessa's point of view, the next hurdle is one familiar to many organisations that have been supported by far-sighted funders from philanthropy and government, and that's how to scale up the quiet revolution to turn the innovation into something sustainable. Well, the gift of philanthropy in the context of health justice partnership has been the demonstration of the service model and the funding of an intermediary. And it's our job as Health Justice Australia, as the intermediary in this landscape, it's our job to be making that argument. And I would say that's partly what philanthropists have funded us to do. So philanthropy is not necessarily itself fronting up to that conversation. They are investing in an intermediary as a systems player to do that. I'm really proud of the achievements of the network of services and communities that have got Health Justice Partnership to this place, but I'm crystal clear about the continuing work and and the continuing challenge of helping at a system level scale this work beyond the local level where it is currently having huge impact into a much more significant change at a regional, state or national level. Yasmin's identified another key element of how the partnership works, its capacity to advocate. Both lawyers and social workers, they need to constantly advocate for the clients and working outside the usual boundaries. And, you know, a lot can be achieved through advocacy. It might just be, you know, calling clients landlords or housing services and explaining the client situation, which is not necessarily a legal issue yet but could lead to a legal issue. So it's actually really important too for early intervention approaches. Or, you know, a client might be experiencing domestic violence, um, you know, but doesn't want to apply for a DVO because they want to maintain a relationship with their family member or someone that might be the perpetrator, which, you know, we listen to our client's wishes. And so we'll have to explore different options and try to be an advocate for the client in another way. It's just another way that the partnership can potentially transform outcomes for those who are caught in a complex web of health and legal challenges. This has been the Philanthropy Australia podcast. 
I'm Nick Richardson, and thanks for listening. <laughs>